Church. I know. We are in the book of Habakkuk this morning. We're going to be finishing the book. You know, uh, it's pronounced different ways. We talked about this. I think the proper pronunciation is Habakkuk. But you'll never hear me saying it that way. Uh, you'll probably hear me saying it all different ways. Habakkuk, Habakkuk. Just know this is who we're talking about, okay, this morning. So we're in chapter 3 of this book. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. And uh, Greg's up. Greg, we're grab some Bibles. Greg, we'll get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. I think there's more Bibles. Well, gosh, gosh, we've got to order some more Bibles. There's some in the back sound. Is there some in the back sound booth? Maybe not. Anybody else? There's more on this side. Wait till Greg gets all the way back to and someone else raise their hand. <laughs> Even if you don't need a Bible, just raise your hand. <laughs> Habakkuk chapter 3, we've been looking at this study, really Habakkuk for today, and it really does fit with what we see going on in our world today. The title of my message this morning is From Fear to Faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together. Thank you, Lord, for this sweet time of worship. May we just pour out our hearts in praise to you, Lord. And we want to continue in worshiping you in the study of your word. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being here and teaching us all things that we need that lead to life and to godliness. Lord, we can find that in your word. Lord, thank you that uh, we'll find not only information, but application that would change our lives, that would draw us closer to you and our relationship with you. So bless this time, we pray. Lord, we pray if there's anyone that has joined us that has yet to surrender their life to you. They're not born again this morning. They're still dead in their trespasses and sin. Lord, uh, that you have so much for them. We pray that they would come to know you as Lord and Savior. And they turn from their sin and they turn to you in faith this morning. Thank you for our time together. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. found a story about two gas company servicemen. One a senior training supervisor and the other a young trainee who was out checking meters. And they parked their truck at the end of this alley and they're working their way to the other end of the street. At the last house, a woman was looking out her kitchen window, watched the two men as they gathered and checked her meter. Well, as they finished... The meter check, the older supervisor challenged his younger co-worker to a foot race down the alley back to their truck. As they came running up to the truck, they realized that the lady from the last house was huffing and puffing right behind them. So they stopped and they asked her what was wrong. Gasping for breath, she said, when I see two gas men running full speed away from my house, I figured I'd better run too. Freaked out. She was afraid. Found another story of a mom who was very concerned for the safety of her children while they were going to school because the school was uh, kind of located on a busy street and the drivers really didn't take heed to the school's own speed limit sign there. 
And because the police weren't taking action, she thought she would take matters into into her own hands. And so she decided that she would put the fear of a speeding ticket in the speeding driver's going past this elementary school. So every morning she would park her car in front of the elementary school and point her black hair dryer, shaped like a radar gun, out the window at speeding cars. The effect was dramatic. Drivers slowed down, fearing they might receive a speeding ticket. My point is, fear is a very influential thing. It can cause drivers to slow down for fear of a ticket. It can cause you and I to to grind our lives to a stop, a halt, or to run in fear for any number of reasons that we face. Fear can have harmful effects upon our lives. We start to experience a lack of enthusiasm. Life just doesn't have any purpose anymore. We become unfocused in our thoughts. All we can think about is that which we fear. Fear keeps us from interacting with one another. All we want to do is be left alone by ourselves with it. Fear keeps us from getting anything done. We're consumed with fear. And eventually, if not dealt with properly, fear can turn into ungodly behavior because we don't know how to deal with it in a healthy way, so we turn to unhealthy ways of coping with fear. But the Bible is crystal clear. Fear is not God's plan for your life. Faith is God's plan for your life. And the key to this book of Habakkuk is found in chapter 2, verse 4, where it says, The just shall live by his faith. Not fear, by his faith. That's the lesson that Habakkuk learned as he opened his heart to the Lord. And my prayer, as we finish up this book, the lesson that we would learn as well. There's so many comparisons to Habakkuk's time and our time that it's just really crazy that we see this. That's why the reason I called this book, our studies, Habakkuk for today. That we would learn like Habakkuk that no matter what happens in this world, we would not walk in fear, but we would walk in faith. Now, if you're keeping notes, uh, three points that we're going to see this morning. Number one, the request. Number two, the review. And number three, the rejoicing. Number one, the request. Now, if you remember back in chapter 1, Habakkuk looked across the world of that day. His time, he saw violence. He saw injustice. He saw strife. He saw contention. He saw that within his own people, they were breaking the laws. Laws were not enforced. And the whole nation was all suffering as a result of turning their backs on God and turning to, to idols. But along with the internal problems that they were having was the evil Babylonian empire breathing down their necks, ready to come in and swoop them up as a nation. So all of these things certainly brought fear. And so in chapter 1, Habakkuk is questioning God. His request, God, what's going on? God, I don't get it. Why is this happening? Why am I going through this struggle? Why am I seeing these things happen within our nation? And it seems that you're not doing anything about it. And God answers in verse 5 of chapter 1 and says to him, Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days, which you would not believe, though it were told you. The Lord tells him, and Habakkuk certainly did not believe what he heard. It's funny that God could have said, I told you you wouldn't believe me if I told you, and I tell you, you don't believe me, do you? And I'm convinced that that's why at times God doesn't tell us what he's doing. I think if he told us every little aspect of what he's doing in our lives, say, for instance, five years from now, I don't think we would believe it. 
I think we would argue with them. I mean, if God told me when I first got saved some 41 years ago, that's a long time ago. (laughs) I was two. Um, (laughs) If God told me I was, when I got saved, that I would have five kids, I'd be living in the middle of the United States, married, pastoring a church, I either would have flipped and ran in the opposite direction or said, hey, let's do this now. Either way, I I don't know. I don't think I would have believed it. See, I believe that God doesn't reveal everything about His plan in our lives for our own good. But what we need to remember is that our God is sovereign and that the plans that He has for us are long-term plans. Amortized over many, many years. You know, I've shared this verse many times before. It's a great verse. We all know it. Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. He has his thought for us. Now, he doesn't always tell us what it is, but he wants us to trust him. So God answers Habakkuk's prayer in verses 5 through 11 of chapter 1, but not with the answer that he was looking for. Not with the answer that he was hoping for. God says, I am working. And I'm going to do a work that's going to amaze you. In fact, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to raise up these Babylonians and they're going to conquer your nation. They're going to be my instrument to chasten my people. You can almost hear Habakkuk going, and that's a good thing? How is that a good thing? Because if anything, that would bring more fear into his life. But I love what Habakkuk does in response. Instead of arguing with God, complaining to God, he sets himself apart with God to hear from God. Verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. How did he deal with his fear? He continued to seek the Lord. He continued to look up. He continued to listen to what the Lord would say to him. And if need be corrections, he was willing to receive it, not deny it. And God did answer him. He said, here's what I want you to do. I have a message. Judgment is coming. I want you to run with this message. Get it out to everyone you can, because these things will happen just the way I said that they would happen. So instead of sitting back in fear, God says, I want to use you. Shout the warning. Give the message. Judgment is coming. And we looked at last time, we have the same message, folks. It's written on our hearts. Judgment is coming. That's the bad news. The good news is Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners, to save us from the wrath to come. That's the message each one of us have been given. Written on our hearts, the message that's meant to be shared with the lost and dying world around us. But then the Lord says to Habakkuk, One of the greatest verses in all of Scripture, verse 4, Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Then he goes on to encourage him in verse uh, verse 14 of chapter 2, The earth shall be filled with God's glory. And then verse 20 of chapter 2, The Lord is in his holy temple. What great encouragement. God is still on his throne. Well, now we come... To chapter 3. And we see this tremendous change that has taken place in the life of this man, Habakkuk. We see a man once fearful, now full of faith. A man that was worrying and, and, and 
turning into men that's rejoicing. A man who opens up this book with words of gloom, but closes with words of glory. And really, the beginning of chapter 3, and then chapter 3 is, is opened up as a title. It's a title to a song that's also a prayer. Look at verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigenoth. The word Shigenoth or Shigenoth is a word having to do with, with music. Some might think it's like a musical notation, a note to indicate that, you know, that this is how it's going to be played or a prayer that was meant to be sung as a hymn. Others say it might even have been a musical instrument. What do you play? Well, I play the shiganoth. Really? Yeah. I don't know, you know. But I know as we look through these verses here this morning, we see also three pauses. Because within these verses are the words selah, which is a musical term that means stop and think about it. Stop and think about what's just been said. Then at the end, we see the instruction in verse 19 given to the chief musician with my stringed instruments. So apparently, Habakkuk wanted this played, you know, kind of peppy. So he called for a string ensemble. Okay, we want that there, you know. And our day, bring in the electric guitars, bring in the acoustic guitars. We wanted the song to rock. And so, now as we go through this chapter, there are many phrases that would make, really, I think, for an awesome praise song. I mean, have you ever stopped to think about how much singing there is in the Bible? I mean, the 150 Psalms are all songs. The Song of Solomon was the greatest of some 1,000 songs Solomon wrote. Then we look at the characters in the Bible. Moses wrote and sang songs, so did his sister Miriam. Deborah sang during the time of the judges. Isaiah sings to God and God sings to Israel in the book of Isaiah. In the New Testament, we looked at, not too long ago, the redeemed sing songs in the throne room of heaven. And in both the Old and the New Testament, angels are constantly singing before the Lord. So my question is, do you sing before the Lord? We are told to. We're told in Psalm 96, 12, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name, proclaim the good news of His salvation from day to day. Are we doing that? Paul writes in Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. You say, well, Pastor, I don't have a good voice. I can't carry a tune in a bucket. Listen, that didn't stop Moses, who was described as slow of speech. Maybe you've been asked to sing solo, so low that no one can hear you. Maybe you've been asked to sing tenor, 10 or 12 miles away. Listen, it doesn't matter before the Lord, because the Lord says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Psalm 98, 4, shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth, break forth in song, rejoice and sing praises. See, God looks at our hearts, not at our vocal ability or lack thereof. I like what Oswald Chambers wrote, to the, to the ear of God, Everything he created makes it twisted music, and man joined in the song of praise until he fell. Then there came in the frantic discord of sin. The realization of redemption brings man, by the way of the minor note of repentance, back into tune with praise again. I like that. Sing unto the Lord. Even when things look bleakest, even when fear sets in, more than ever, it is time to sing. And that's what we see Habakkuk doing here. 
This is a, a song. It's a prayer. It's Hebrew poetry. He looks out and he sees his people, his country, about to be judged and judged by a more wicked nation than his is. And instead of freaking out, he begins to focus on who God is and what God has done. And when it comes down to it, is that not what praise is all about? We focus our hearts on who God is and what God has done. And we realize then that He alone is worthy of all of our praise. That it's not about me. It's about Him. It's about what He's done for us. Habakkuk looked around and saw chaos. He saw fear. He looked up and he saw God. And knew that God saw him and he rejoiced. That's how it works, folks. When we look at our circumstances, we can get fearful, depressed, even discouraged. But once we look to the Lord and we see that nothing can separate us from His love, it puts all those circumstances and difficulties into proper perspective. Remember a story I heard about a woman who was very discouraged because of the, all the problems going on in her life. And she's walking down the street and she met a fellow believer who asked, Hey, how are you doing today? With a sour look and bitter shrug, she replied, Oh, not too bad under the circumstances. To which this believer quickly countered, Well, get above the circumstances. That's where Jesus is. And that's what Habakkuk does with that same mind. Look at verse 2 now. He says, O oh Lord, I have heard your speech, and I was afraid. This is of chapter 3. O oh Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. I like that Habakkuk's request is that for Revival. He says, oh, Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. Why is he asking for revival? Because he knows that judgment is about to come. Let me read verse 2 in the New Living Translation. It goes like this. I have heard all about you, Lord. I'm filled with awe by your amazing works. In this time of our deep need, help us again as you did in years gone by. And in your anger, remember your mercy. This is very interesting to me because Habakkuk now reverses himself. See, first he thought that God wasn't doing anything. But now he's afraid that the Lord is doing too much. He's in in awe of all that God is doing. And I think his prayer is the same prayer that we would pray for today. Lord, we know that our nation deserves judgment. God, we know what your word says. We know that judgment must come for the murder of the unborn children in our land. We know that judgment must come because of the violence and the sexual immorality in our country. Judgment must come on a nation that has turned its back on you. And Lord, as believers, we stand in awe of your word because we know that it will come to pass. But Lord, would you send one more revival into our land? Would you revive us one more time? That was Habakkuk's prayer. Oh Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. That word revive can mean to make alive or to restore to life. Revival is making alive those who are dead. Those who are unbelievers. Described in the Bible as dead in their trespasses and sins. They are spiritually dead and need to be made alive by God. Now we would call that aspect of revival uh, evangelism. But revival also is the restoring the life of those who are alive. That's for believers. Those that are walking with the Lord, but their lives lack that vitality. They have the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit doesn't have them. See, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, you need revival. 
you need to be made alive by God. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you might also need revival. You might need to be restored to a walk that has vitality, that has power to stand in these days in which we're living today. So each of us should make Habakkuk's prayer our prayer. Lord, we need revival not only in our own land, but we need revival in our lives, personally. And notice what he's praying for in verse 2. He says, O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. Not my work, not what I want to do. Lord, revive what you want to do in my life. May we be about the work of the Lord and all that we do, and not our own ideas, our own ambitions, but what he would have for us today. And that we would pray, Lord, change me. Lord, do that work in me to bring about revival in my life. I think we all need it. We want to see revival in our time. But it begins with us. If you want to tell people you work with about Jesus Christ, then make sure that you are a model of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. If you want to be on your children to be on fire for the Lord, then it's got to come from you first. Habakkuk went first into his prayer tower, into his prayer closet, so to speak, to pray for revival. And I think if you and I were like him, we too would climb into our prayer closets and seek the Lord. And we would pray like never before for revival, not only in our land, but in every area of our lives, in our marriages. God, would you revive, would you restore our marriage, my marriage, bless my marriage. Send revival in my life, Lord, in my kids' lives, in our church, in our city. Lord, especially in our country. Again, as we look around our nation, our prayer should be the same. Send one more revival before judgment, Lord. And then he says this in that verse. He says, in the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Again, you see how Habakkuk has changed. At first he said, you're not doing anything, you know, Lord, why don't you do something? Uh, why don't you judge them for, for their sin? Now God has let Habakkuk see that he's doing something, the judgment is coming. Now he's crying out for the mercy of God. God, you're not doing anything. Oh, God, what you're doing? Oh, man, mercy. And wrath, remember mercy. I think that if we really knew how close we are to God's judgment, if we knew how much God is moving in judgment, it would bring America to their knees before God. Our nation needs the mercy of God today. Listen to what J. Vernon McGee wrote over 40 years ago. Since World War II, we have been on an ego trip. We have really had a flight of pride of being the greatest nation in the world. And now even our little gas buggies have been slowed down. We feel almost helpless today. What would we do in the time of a major crisis? Suppose we were attacked from the outside. How much gasoline would there be? How much of the many other chemicals that are so needed would there be? How long would we really last? It is my belief that God is moving in judgment and we need to ask Him to be merciful to us. Wow. Jay Vernon McGee said that we needed mercy in 1981 during a gas crisis. How much more do we need today to be praying for God's mercy? Now understand, God is merciful. And in times of judgment and wrath, He does show mercy. I think the story of the flood, you know, classic example of God taking merciful action to restrain humanity's ever-increasing evilness. See, Genesis tells us that God saw that every intention of the thought of man's heart was only evil continually. 
He knew they were never going to change. So the best thing he could do was to, to, to destroy them. That was showing mercy. God is merciful. God is gracious. But God also has a goal, according to Second Peter 3, 9, that he's not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. So, as we continue on in Habakkuk's praise song now in verse 3 through verse 15, he recalls all of God's working in the past and what is about to happen in the future. That brings us to point two, Habakkuk's review. You know, oftentimes in our praise songs, we sing the same thing. Not this, I mean, we do sing the same words over and over again sometimes. Sometimes they do it too far. You know, I, I like a lot of the praise songs. I like some of them sing a lot. There's that one song that we do, He is for me. You know that song, He is for me, He is for me. I tease my kids all the time about it because we say it like 27 times. <laughs> I know He's for me. And it's good to remind myself, but now how about just doing it eight times or nine times? It's good to remind us of, of what God is and who God is and to sing these songs of praise to Him. But here, uh, the song, so often we sing how great our God has been in the past, how great our God is now, and how great He is still working and moving in our future. And that's what Habakkuk is doing here. And that's a good thing. Because it reminds us of all the things that God has done for us. It gets our hearts refocused on how good our God is. See, Habakkuk is about to point out in that every era of the Jewish history, God was there for his people, to work with his people, that he would not fail them. Yeah, the Babylonian invasion and captivity would be a painful experience, but God would use them for his glory and the good of his people. Look now at verse 3. We read, God came from Timan, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. Now again, Selah means stop and meditate. Think about this. Well, when you read a verse like that, that God came from Timon, how can you not stop and think about it? What does that mean? That sounds really bizarre. Well, taken out of context, it can be a very disturbing verse. In fact, I've heard of people that have said that this means Timon is somewhere where omnipotent beings hang out and God decides to come to the earth. That's a ridiculous, I mean, it's just hogwash theology. Take it in context. What are we reading here? Understand the word Timon actually is a poetic word in reference to God's appearance at Mount Sinai. Remember I said already, verse 3 through 15 is a review of what God has done in the past with his people. Listen to Deuteronomy 33, 2. And he said, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran and he came with ten thousands of saints. From his right hand came a fiery law for them. God came down Mount Sinai established his covenant with them. He also would come to liberate his people and reaffirm his covenant with them. Pretty simple when you see law, when you stop and think about it. Pretty simple when you put it in the right context. Well, he continues with his praise. Now look at verses four, 3 and 4. He goes on, His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of praise. His brightness was like the light. He had rays flashing from his hand, and there his power was hidden. Now again, this is a description of God's appearance to the nation at Mount Sinai. I think, I mean, what a great praise song this would be. The earth was full of praise. His brightness was like a light. Uh, this is great. Verse 5. Before him went pestilence and fever followed at his feet. Now we move to, to God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. The plagues. 
summarizes pestilence and fever. Verse 6, he stood and measured the earth. He looked and startled the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills bowed. His ways are everlasting. Now we're moving to, to God picturing the, as, a, as surveying Israel's march to the promised land. He, he would uh, startle the nations. Anything that stood in their way, he would, uh, he would move out of the way. Nothing could stop their advance, not even the mountains and the hills. Verse 7, I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian trembled. Those nations that would seek to interfere, they were pushed aside as God's people marched. Verse 8, O Lord, you were displeased with the rivers. Was your anger against the rivers? Was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses, your chariots of salvation? God was revealed mightily and miraculously as he turned the Nile River into blood, as he parted the Red Sea, as he dried up the Jordan River. Those physical obstacles to the deliverance and advance of his people became instead chariots of their salvation. We see God moving, what God did, how God worked powerfully. Verse 9 and 10. Your bow was made quite ready. Oaths were sworn over your arrows. Selah, you divided the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and trembled. The overflowing of the water passed. The deep uttered its voice and lifted its hands on high. God protected his people, directed his people, provided for his people. The word, the phrase, divided the earth with rivers could be a reference to uh, bringing forth the water out of the rock when, when Moses struck it, struck it there in the wilderness. Basically, he's saying all of nature was submission to God, submission to God on behalf of his people. Verse 11 through 13, And the sun and the moon even stood still in their habitation. At the light of your arrows they won, at the shining of your glittering spear. You marched through the land in indignation. You trampled the nations in anger. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for salvation with your anointed. You struck the head from the house of the wicked by laying bare from foundation to neck, Selah. Now Habakkuk moves even more forward in his review of God's work to the time of Joshua and the conquest of Canaan. God caused the sun and the moon literally to stand still for Joshua that we read in verse 11. The light of your arrows, the shining of your glittering spear are references to the flight of Joshua's enemies as a result of the hailstorm, perhaps maybe lightning at the same time. Again, Asila, stop and think about this. Stop and think about all the ways in which God has moved and protected his people and has a plan and a purpose and a direction for them. All the ways God has provided for them that nothing could stop God from working in and through their lives. And this really summarizes the, the past works of God on Israel's behalf. But then we start to read of the future that God has for Israel. Verse 13, you struck the head from the house of the wicked by laying bare from the foundation to the neck. Verse 14 and 15, you thrust through with your own arrows the head of his villages. They came out like a whirlwind to scatter me. The rejoicing was like feasting on the poor in secret. You walked through the sea with your horses through the heap of great waters. Notice verse 13, you struck the head. We know from Scripture that Babylon is, is depicted in Scripture as a head of gold on top of the kingdoms of the world. Remember Nebuchadnezzar's statue. God would strike down that nation he was going to use to judge his people. It says that God would walk through the sea in verse 15 with his horses. 
You know, history tells us when Babylon fell, it was a result of the Medes and the Persians who blocked up the Euphrates River, came under the walls and, and, and through the sea, so to speak, and conquered Babylon. Now look at verse 16. As Habakkuk has reviewed God's past dealings with his people and the prophetic work that he was about to do, he says this in verse 16. When I heard, my body trembled. My lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered my bones, and I trembled in myself, that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops. Again, Habakkuk said earlier, Lord, do something. Now he says, Lord, I tremble when I see what you're going to (laughs) do. I asked for judgment in chapter 1, but I spoke too quickly. Now I see when you step, mountains melt. When you walk, earthquakes And again, I think we can be like Habakkuk and so often say, oh, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Jesus, don't you think it's about time? Could you come back today? But do we remember, do we realize what that means for those that are left behind? Hebrews 10.31 says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And I think we can relate to that when we think about what we just studied in the book of Revelation. How we read in God's word that the earth is going to face tribulation like like never before on the face of this earth or never again. Hailstones the size of bowling balls coming down from the sky. Plagues, death, earthquakes, wars, God's judgment. And we could say like verse 2, Oh Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid of how terrible it's going to be for those that are about to face judgment. He goes on, look at verse 17. He says, Though the fig tree may not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. I mean, you could not paint a worse word picture than what Habakkuk does in his phrase. Nothing of his normal daily life would remain the same. Things were not going to get better. They were going to get worse. He says, though the fig tree may not blossom nor fruit be on the vines. Figs and raisins were the two of the main fruits that they, they dried. Main source of their, 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 uh, their um, nourishment. And there's not going to be any figs. To someone who loves figs, this is horrible. It's terrible. I love figs. Basically what they're saying is that uh, with these fruits gone, it would be a very long and hard winter. He says, though the labor of the olive may fail. I mean, the olive was, was, I mean, that was their main source. I mean, they had their oil from olives. They preserved their olives. At the time, there were many olive trees that were going on, but, but Habakkuk says they're, they're going to be gone. And he goes on, though the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stall. I mean, what a pretty bleak picture that is painted for us in this song. I mean, this whole first part, he's just singing the blues. But it's about to change. The best is yet to come. Yeah, these are are horrible. Yet, look at verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. That's our third and our final point, the rejoicing. In other words, even though there will be no means of any supplies that we will need, even though my country is going to be devastated by the Babylonians, my stock's going to crash, my bank account's going to close, my house will burn, even though everything is troubling, even though there'll be no more figs, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. 
I will joy in the God of my salvation. I like this word for rejoice in the Hebrew. It literally means to jump up and down. And it says, I will joy in the God of my salvation. That word joy literally means to spin around. So in the midst of all that's going on, Habakkuk says, I will rejoice and jump up and down. I will have joy and spin around in the God of my salvation. Not in the circumstances, but in his God he's rejoicing. He was in the valley in chapter 1. He's in the tower chapter 2. And now he's on the mountaintop in chapter 3 rejoicing. You see, he had fear when he heard of what the Lord was about to do. He had fear as he anticipated the violence that would come at a time from the Babylonian invasion. But he did something about it. He turned to God. And in turning to God, God gave him victory over that weakness. He gave him victory over that fear. He gave him faith. Same victory that we have today for God's people. Whatever he may call upon you to face in your life, or maybe whatever you have gone through in your life, whatever the trial is, or maybe be it an operation, you know, a, a medical operation, be it a separation, be it facing death of a loved one or, or something we all face one day, God wants you to turn from that fear and walk in faith. Because it's precisely in those situations that it is possible to rejoice in God, to have joy in Him as He brings us victory from fear. You see, he finally finishes this song in verse 19 by saying, The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and He will make me walk on high hills. I love the New Living Translation on my high heels, not, not shoes, actual heels. But I love the New Living Translation. It says this, The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes me as sure-footed as a deer, able to tread upon the heights. It's just the, the sure-footedness of a, of a mountain deer, even when it's been forced by its enemies to escape to higher ground, rockier ground, his feet are going to be sure. Danger is turned into devotion as you are forced upward. As your enemies are pursuing you, we are pursuing eternity. See, we need to understand that God is our strength, that God is our joy. That our God is moving in a very definite way. And if we want answers to our problems, Habakkuk shows us all the answers we need found up in one word, God. God is the answer to our problems. I may not know what's going on in your life or what difficulty you're facing this morning, but I do know that God has the answer, that God has a plan and a purpose, and you can have faith and confidence in Him that He's going to see you through. God has a purpose for your life, and He intends to carry it through. You can trust Him with it, and you'll find that He begins to work in you. But faith is the key. The just shall live by faith. Praying, seeking the Lord. I love the way Pastor John Corson uh, puts it in his commentary on Habakkuk. He compares two prophets who struggled with God's will, Jonah and Habakkuk. And he writes this. We know that Jonah ran from God when he heard what God would do, but Habakkuk ran to God wondering what God would do. Jonah saw the salvation of God to the Gentiles. Habakkuk saw the sovereignty of God through the Gentiles. Finally, Jonah's story ends in foolishness as he worries about a gourd. Habakkuk's story ends in faith as he trusts in God. He says the difference between Habakkuk and Jonah, between you and the person who's despairing, is simply this. Jonah had to learn in the fish. Habakkuk learned in the high tower. I like that. You and I, we have a choice. 
God is going to teach us because the just shall live by his faith. Where do you want to live? Where do you want to learn your lessons about faith? No, we have a choice. I can either seek the Lord with determination and expectation in the tower, or I can get tossed around in the storm in the belly of the great well and wonder what's going on. Why is my life always going through storms? Why is there always seaweed around my head? Why do I always feel cramped? Why am I always in the dark? The reason people are always in the storm is because they're never in the high tower. I don't know if you saw this or not. Maybe you did. I read this last Friday. A lobster diver actually got swallowed by a huge humpback whale off the coast of Massachusetts. And he made it out alive with only minor injuries. Michael Packard, 56, said, All of a sudden, I felt this huge shove, and the next thing I knew, it was completely black. I could sense I was moving, and I could feel the well squeezing with the muscles in his mouth. He says, I was completely inside the well. It was completely black. He added, I thought to myself, there's no way I'm going to get out of here. I'm done. I'm dead. He says he thought he was in the well's mouth for about 30 seconds. He was able to breathe because he still had his diving breathing apparatus on. In an effort to save himself, Packard said he began shaking the well's head before the animal surfaced and ejected him. In the Facebook post, he writes, he said, the well spit me out and that he escaped with bruises and no broken bones. Now, I don't know what's going on in his life. (laughs) Or what the Lord is trying to teach him. But I know this. I would rather learn to walk in faith in a high tower than in the belly of a well. Folks, the Lord wants us to seek his face, to hear his voice, to see his vision that no matter what is happening around us, that we might be an oasis of tranquility and have that peace in our lives that passes all understanding. No matter how bad the evening news might be, he wants us to rejoice in him that he is our strength, he is our joy. And I don't know about you, but when I, when I seek the Lord about a problem, when I'm struggling with, with things going on in my life, after I'm done finished talking to Him and praying and praising Him and worshiping Him and spending time with Him, suddenly I forgot what I came to Him for in the first place. And not just because, not just because I'm old and I have a bad memory. My fears and my problems are so small and insignificant compared to the power and the might of our mighty God. His fellowship is so rich. No matter what happens, he is our joy in seeking him. We find what we long for all along him. I want to close with this. On a balmy October afternoon in 1982, Badger Stadium in Madison, Wisconsin, it was packed. More than 60,000 diehard University of Wisconsin supporters were watching their football team take on Michigan State Spartans. It soon became obvious that the, the Michigan had the better team. What seemed odd, however, as the score became more lopsided, were the bursts of applause, applause and shouts from joy from the Wisconsin fans. How could they cheer so much when their team was losing? Turns out that 70 miles away, the Milwaukee Brewers were beating the St. Louis Cardinals in Game 3 of the 1982 World Series. Many of the fans in the stands were listening on portable radios and responding to something other than the immediate circumstances. My point... Habakkuk could praise God because he was tuned in to the bigger picture. He knew that God was ultimately in control. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18. In the New Living Translation, Paul writes this. That is why we never give up. 
Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. How do we overcome fear? With faith. That's the lesson that Habakkuk learned as he opened his heart to the Lord and dealt with his heart. He refused to let circumstances dampen his faith or crush his hopes. He looked to the future not with pessimistic fears of what else could go wrong, but with faith in God that no matter what would happen, God would be there. Even if he lost all his possessions, he knew that he would continue to trust in the Lord to meet his needs. Same way, folks, our eyes need to be focused on the Lord, not our, on our circumstances. We need to live above the shadows of fear and bask in the sunlight of faith. And even though we, like Habakkuk, may have a long list of troubles, faith is always the answer. Yes, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. What, what a great book this was. I mean, from, from sighing in the valley to seeking in the tower, now Habakkuk is standing on the mountain and singing God's praise. Listen, if you're here this morning and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, let me tell you, if you call out to God, He will hear you. He will, he will open up, you know, uh, forgiveness in your life. If you come to Him and say, Lord, forgive me of my sin. I want to put my faith and trust in you. You don't need much faith for that. Just a little bit of faith that says, God, I believe that you died on the cross for me, rose again from the grave, that you're coming back for me. Put your faith in him and you will be saved from God's wrath, saved from separation from him. I like what C.S. Spurgeon once said. It's not great faith, but true faith that saves. And the salvation lies not in the faith, but in the Christ who, in who faith trusts. God is the only one that can forgive you of your sin. God is the only one that can give you the hope of heaven. Only Jesus Christ can set you free from the chains of sin. That's why he wanted the cross. That's why he died for us. So we can be born again today. Give your life to Jesus if you don't know him today, this morning. Finally, for us as believers, I think we need to really be praying for revival. Oh Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. Maybe you need revival in your life. You might need to be restored to a walk that has vitality. Each of us should be making Habakkuk's prayer our prayer. Lord, we need revival not only in our personal lives, but especially, Lord, in our nation. Again, a quote from C.H. Spurgeon. And we'll close with this last quote. O God, have mercy upon thy poor church and visit her and revive her. She has but a little strength. She has desired to keep thy word. O refresh her. Restore to her thy power and give her yet to be great in this land. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy, Lord. And I do pray if there's anyone here that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again, Lord, would you open up their hearts, help them to see their need for you, help them to turn from their sin today and make that commitment to you to be born again this morning. Father, for us as believers, Lord, we recognize our country needs an awakening. We need a spiritual revival. We need now more than ever a move of your Holy Spirit across our land. Father, we pray that it would happen. Lord, first here in Springfield. Lord, let it start here. Let it then move to our surrounding communities and then to the nation. 
Lord, we pray that it will happen in our church. Lord, we pray that it will happen in each one of our lives, in our homes, in our marriages, in our hearts, that it would be once again on fire for you, Lord. Lord, even in the face of judgment, we ask for mercy for our nation, that our leaders would turn to you, Lord, to learn how to govern this nation, Lord, because they know you, not because of some policy they think is right. Again, Lord, we pray finally for those that don't know you. They're lost. They need you, Lord. We pray for opportunities for evangelism. Lord, help us to get the message out. Help us not to walk in fear, but in faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.